This is CSAP Science and Policy Podcast, where we're bringing you the latest evidence and expertise to improve public policymaking. This week, we're proud to present the eighth episode in our series on science, policy, and pandemics, which is brought to you in partnership with Cambridge Infectious Diseases and the Cambridge Immunology Network. In this episode, our host, Dr. Rob Doubleday, is joined by Professor John Crowcroft and epidemiologist Dr. Caroline Trotter for a discussion focused on the new opportunities and challenges for innovative technology in the context of COVID-19. Welcome, everybody. My name is Rob Doubleday from the Centre for Science and Policy. Today, we're joined by John Crowcroft, who's the Marconi Professor of Communication Systems at Cambridge. And if we've been thinking about interesting job titles, I like one of John's job titles, which is Researcher at Large at the Alan Turing Institute. John, you're very welcome. And Caroline Trotter, welcome back. So Caroline is an infectious diseases epidemiologist at Cambridge and academic director of the Cambridge Africa program and Caroline's joined us before and it's very nice to see you back again Caroline. The main substance of our discussion today is about um, digital systems, um, trustworthy digital systems and digital identities and particularly relevance of those questions for um, immunity passporting and other other sort of biometric uh, data. But to start with, Caroline, I'd like to turn to you because um, it would be interesting to hear from your point of view what the current understanding is at a general level of kind of immunity and and COVID-19. Thanks Rob, so I'll qualify this by saying I'm I'm an epidemiologist not an immunologist. I think the the current knowledge on immunity to this new virus, we're we're still in the early days because it's a new virus, we we have no way of knowing if immunity will be short-term or long-term and the tests still seem rather unreliable. The advice, current advice in the World Health Organization is that we don't have enough knowledge yet to justify a, a sort of immune passporting type approach. That may change as we uh, gain more and more knowledge, but that's the the current situation. As I think we're we're learning as we go along, we don't understand fully about the immune response to this virus, certainly not the duration of immunity, and uh, there's still work to be done on on developing reliable tests of immunity. But John, if we could take a step back and just hear from you about um, how much confidence should governments should the general public have in the ability of digital systems to store and 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 report on our, our identity our, and, and the kind of very personal data that we're talking about here? Uh, so digital identity is a pretty hot topic right now. Um, we're working on a project with the Gates Foundation uh, across four countries in building national digital IT systems that are trustworthy. And let me define trustworthy. That means even if you don't trust the government, uh, that the system will report attributes of uh, associated with an identity somehow to appropriate third parties. So we've been thinking about how that might work uh, if one had a reliable way of demonstrating uh, immunity to something. I'm holding up my yellow fever vaccine certificate, which is a piece of paper, uh, which I can show at the border, and I will be required to show this. And we were, we were talking earlier about if you have a pet and you want to travel, you can get a, a similar thing for a, a pet that's been vaccinated against rabies, uh, which we kind of care about in some countries where we don't have rabies, which is a pretty horrible disease. So a certificate could be part of that, and it could be an attribute of uh, identity in uh, some system. And the reason you might want it to be digital is that that would then allow uh, some kind of cross-border verification. Let me give you a simple example. If you want to rent a car in Italy, if we're allowed to go there ever again, uh, and you come from the UK, you, you need to produce your driving license. But if you have a recent driving license, you don't have a physical 
uh, license. You have a, one at the DVLA's database. So you have to get them to give a token for you to give to the car rental company that allows them to check you have a valid driving license. So that's a one shot lookup of an attribute. We could do exactly the same if we had a vaccine uh, for COVID-19 um, that we knew had a very uh, a, a sort of yellow fever vaccine like level of, of uh, confidence. You would then easily be able to have a, a database that held that information. And notice what I said is that with the driving license example, you don't need to have a phone with you. Now the UK uh, has a few one-shot things like the driving license, but we don't have an ID system per se. Yeah, we have lots of different systems that are not, not joined up. Some countries, Estonia notably, have a digital ID system for all citizens. And other countries, notably India, have an ID system which includes paper ID, which could also include this kind of attribute in a way. You said um, systems could be designed technically to you know to look after your identity and share information you want shared even if you don't trust the government that right and, and, and so could you say something about what that means technically and to a layper to me I think like is then the choice either i trust my government or i trust microsoft no, this is a great question. So, so this is one of the great breakthroughs in the last few years. We use multi-party secure computations uh, to hold the information. Um, and so that no single party can extract the information. Uh, the Estonian system is such a system. Uh, they have a very smart decentralized system. In fact, one of the European-wide contact tracing apps for COVID-19 is also a decentralized system, which runs in such a way that no single agency can extract the list of your contacts that you've made while you're infected, they can be notified without anyone knowing who was notified, including yourself. We, we have systems that as long as you don't want to do something at super high speed, you know, then they're fine. And of course, if you're just verifying some attribute of somebody that, for example, they have been vaccinated for something or they do have a valid driving license and so on, uh, then even with a large number of people accessing such a system a day, it's not a huge problem to build this. So, so in practice, uh, both with, for example, contact tracing apps, but also with uh, decentralized, generalized ID systems, which could contain these things like, you know, proof of immunity or whatever, or evidence of good evidence of immunity. Your, da your data is sharded and, and, and spliced and distributed across multiple places. So this is, uh, and each one of which can't pull one bit out and, and extract the meaning um, or deny surfacing in fact you know, they could be shut down but you can still reconstruct your your system the estonian system was designed to be proof against russia invading them again and so they've distributed their data over servers in multiple other countries like switzerland sweden and so on do these distributed systems use blockchain blockchain is definitely not the right technical answer because it's immutable and as soon as you move stuff off the immutability thing you're not on a blockchain so they have a better approach and their documentation is really good. I mean, what would you recommend a government like the United Kingdom doing to facilitate the sort of trustworthy digital identities that you're talking about? I mean, do, does the UK need to have a an ID system, a unified ID system? Must it work internationally with others? Does it need to or, or can there be ways of, of developing this that's sort of in line with British kind of attitudes to ID well, so the decentralized type approach would allow you to federate between existing systems. Uh, your, you know, your passport is another form of ID, your driving license is another form of ID. It might be useful for, for, for sharing some information between those at the control of the subject, me, you, us, uh, rather than the government. So that might 
the more acceptable way of doing things. Also with contact tracing, it's completely clear that it's very, very hard to share test data and contact data between countries. So with the example of Ireland, where you have a border that isn't a border, you'd really like the Irish contact tracing app to be able to talk to uh, a Northern Ireland contact tracing app. It will be easier to do that with a decentralized system where you don't have to trust multiple agencies, multiple health services, multiple end users, and multiple app designers. Uh, so uh, you, 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 you essentially disintermediate that trust problem completely. So I think there are multiple examples of why one, one can take this approach. The UK is sort of weird in the world in that we don't have this as a single ID card. You know, we are very unusual uh, and we're strongly resistant to the idea. But I think if you start to see how joining the other forms might be useful, that you could gradually have something that emerges which would fit our, our odds preferences. Social acceptability is not my area. I have lots of colleagues who look at that. The technical side, we can make it uh, trustworthy in a technical sense. What people understand that to mean is, is a whole different story. I, mean, I think that raises an interesting point about how we communicate this, uh, this about this technology. I mean, for things, things to work on an epidemiological scale, like it would be a contract contact tracing app or an immunity passport, enough people would have to accept it and sign, sign up for it, if you like. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I've also been doing some work in infectious disease modelling where we have similar issues with uh, communicating complex ideas. Um, I, I just wonder if you can expand a bit on, on the communication side, if not on the acceptability side, which you, you said is not your area. Um. Right. It, 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 in particular, the way we do these decentralized um, secure systems is pretty hard to get an intuitive understanding. In fact, uh, there are papers from a long time ago by my colleague Ross Anderson, why Johnny can't encrypt and why Johnny still can't encrypt over decades. And that's just the simplest thing of can you send somebody an email in a way that is secure that, that somebody else intercepts email can't look at? Um, it's a standard problem. And most of the systems that were devised work technically perfectly but nobody even technical people couldn't figure out how to use them they were counterintuitive in fact public key crypto is, is famously counterintuitive when you look at uh, routinely most people understand when you have a sort of green uh, web page address in your browser that means it's you know it's been secured and if you ask kids and, and when i say kids i include my kids who are up to 30 years old they totally get what that means so it's a, it took a generation you know for johnny to understand crypto or jane or whoever so, um, but they do now. So, so it's, it's, it's a thing where you have to have a discussion about things with the public and then gradually bring, uh, bring understanding. I mean, what we've seen in the last three months is an awesome increase in public understanding of the word exponential. You know, just that word. You know, when you look at, uh, you look at SIL model, how it shows these, this, this curve, and then you say, we're going to flatten the curve. What does that mean? You, we've got this exponential. We want it to go linear. We want it to go sublinear. We want it to, you know, how do you, and, and people, we're having a horribly hard time. They keep saying there's another burst in this blah blah blah. It wasn't a burst. That if you if you did a log plot, it was a straight line. But but now the public kind of get that idea, which is which is a big step forward. So in the same way, we could probably do the same thing with um, with these kinds of applications. But we need we need to have good communicators uh, have debates in front of people where they get asked tricky questions. You know, how, how what happens if if we usually talk about the participants being, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the there's Alice and Bob and Eve, but there's A, B, and A, B, C, D, E, and you want to see, give examples of what happens if. And there are all kinds of horrible examples. One of the things with contact tracing is, is um, domestic abuse. One of my uh, colleagues, Michael Veal from UCL, is a, a, a 
law faculty, he pointed out that you could uh, you could cause your victim to look like being infected, so they'd be locked down even after everyone else is let out. So you could go on being abusive to them using an app. That's a really that kind of thing has to be discussed the hell out of so that we really understand the downsides and upsides of digital systems and, and mitigate those kinds of problems. And that's kind of sorry that was throwing in a bit of a curveball, but just to show you. We thought, oh, we've got this great approach. And then he came up with this attack, which was, oh, wow, we better, we better think very hard about that. That's a really, that's a really tricky one. Um, we could probably f fix it, but then we have to re-explain that to everyone. So with the NHS contact tracing app, should we be concerned about privacy? And if not, could we add immunity passports to the app? The NHS app has been misdescribed by its proponents. I'm actually fairly in favour of the NHS app uh, in that it's being deployed and tested and they finally released the source code and, you know, we kind of know how it works and it kind of works. And um, they've also got a, a DPIA, which is, you know, data protection impact um, assessment, which needs fixing because it still has the word anonymized and the data is pseudonymized and the difference matters. And where the difference matters is a, is a, a rather specific technical problem, but the data is uh, social network data, effectively. Your list of contacts represents your set of, uh, of people you, you meet, your family, your kin, uh, your colleagues, your uh, uh, staff and student relationship, all those things, as well as people you commute with and so on. So um, unfortunately, that represents a graph, and re-identifying nodes in a graph, if you have other data about the world, is terribly easy. So the NHS has to have, a, uh, actually Public Health England have to have a very, very good story about if they're going to share that data, that they have a uh, audit uh, control over who gets to the data. And epidemiologists, for sure, I think should get at the data because they can learn more precise models of the SIR parameters, whether there's a relationship between children infecting adults, it's, even though they're much less strong symptoms, maybe they're as infectious or not you know we don't i don't think we have a good model we could learn that faster and more precisely but that can be done in an extremely strictly controlled environment with known people doing it with an audit trail which is how it's usually done not giving the data to google health or microsoft health but you know under a strictly control and then by the way all the data should be deleted because once you've extracted the model we have no need for the the, the set of people that I met in the last 10 days this is, you know, is not statistically of interest uh, and it's no use, well, 30 days, let's say, Ross Anderson, I think, and um, uh, uh, Lillian Edwards actually proposed sort of protection for citizens as a new law, uh, which I think has a 30-day timeout. And I think that combination could be, you know, audit trailing, who gets the data, having a very clear list of who, the roles of who's allowed to, you know, MRC-funded researchers only, you know, not commercial for profit. Um, and then if you want to monetize the model they get out, that would be cool. You know, Cambridge epidemiologists extract a great model and then we sell it to AstraZeneca for a shed load of money, but it's just the model and we've deleted all the personal detailed data. I could see that as a story. You have the NHS uh, X, NHS Public Health England, all those folks have to create that very strong feeling of trust in the organization because of their centralized data. If they use the decentralized system, you can still do some of the epidemiological modeling as I understand it. And then you don't have that worry. Um, you need to have a very good model that doesn't do too many false, very few false negatives, but not too many false positives. It's just sort of the ROC for the system has to be good in statistical terms. But it's a great question. I mean, it's, uh, it, it is the worry. And I think just having an ethical protocol that says, these people only are allowed to look at it. The data will be gone after, let's say, 30 days. It might be a bit longer, but, you know, some sensible number. And then, you know, 
that this will, but what the data is, is there are two purposes, contact tracing for the purpose of rapid testing so you can shorten uh, the time it takes so the less contacts made by the secondary or third, you know, fourth and fifth contacts and therefore you are, your R0 comes way down or it helps it come down because you still have human contact tracing and so on and so on. And then also epidemiological modeling helps them, but with the strict controls to, to keep trust. There are other problems though with Mission Creek with adding in immunity passports to the same app, which would be a total terrible idea. Uh, so, you know, it would not be a, uh, uh, would not create any trouble. It, it would stop people using that. They go, oh, I left my phone at home. Oh, I left it off. I forgot to charge it last night. All kinds of things would just start to not work. So, you know, so it'd be counterproductive. But of course, there are somewhat well-meaning, but slightly uh, technically uh, and socio-technically not understand, people that don't get what that would do that would say oh why did we just add this in you know um and this has happened time and again so we need to resist that somehow all these issues were around before covid19 questions of of you know security privacy trust and digital systems and digital identities it just seems that there are opportunities for things to be accelerated and experimented and developed positively there's also opportunities for things to, to go wrong thank you Caroline, did you want to come in here? I just want to come in with two points on sort of the epidemiology side. I mean, John obviously is very, very competent in this field as well from his comments so far. But I mean, two, two things that struck me in the past couple of days, actually listening to lectures from the Isaac Newton Institute. So Graham Medley, um, who's the chair of SPI-M, was asked, what's the goals to inform the models? And, and what they're la really lacking is a good understanding of these dynamic networks, which, which you could get from this sort of this sort of data and this sort of system so, so so it is important for furthering understanding of disease epidemiology and potential effective control measures the other was a lecture from hong kong where they've done very well uh, in controlling um in controlling disease from, from ben cowling and, and the mess one of the main take-home messages from that was well they used a whole suite of different approaches so the more tools you've got you know almost the better we should be considering things as a, as a package and and these new digital tools can be added in to other things. There'll always be a role for human contact, you know, manual contact tracing, um, particularly when you're getting down to low numbers of cases. When you're still at high numbers of cases and the digital apps could be very useful. So I think it's worth thinking about this sort of suite of, of, of tools that we've got. So when you have to act fast and there's less time to think through the integrity of the system, the security, privacy, how, how do you think we should make trade-offs between these questions and, and how should citizens be involved in thinking about what's acceptable? What are the different risk appetites and what's the role of, of policymakers in managing that? Uh, so, so I actually, have, I've given a talk about this three times on, on particularly on contact tracing um, because people have totally failed to look at the medical ethics or the um, uh, technical risks correctly. And, and having done this for 11 years and have to go, we had to go through a medical ethics committee during a real epidemic we had a real app running on real phones with real users. Um, we, we, we were rapidly educated, you know, that we weren't any, not only doing no harm, but our app had to be at least as good as anything else that could be done. That was, you know, if you want to introduce a new drug, if it's not as good as your current drugs in terms of side effects and efficacy, bye-bye drug. So our app 
uh, you know, was was new, so it let you do contact tracing. Now, what would happen in COVID nineteen would be, what does your app do? Well, we actually have evidence from Epidemic. There's a Lancet paper uh, published a, a week ago, uh, based on the Wuhan data, that shows that you can reduce the contact tracing from manual contact tracing, which is always done in Epidemic. So there's always manual contact tracing which takes three and a half to four days on average, down to less than one day. So you can precisely compute for some number of people using the app what reduction in R0 that gives. So if you know the infectiousness and susceptibility, or in fact, you don't need to know that. You can just say it's a ratio. It'll be this much less. So, so we can quantify the improvement that the app gives. So that's, first of all, that says if you can reduce the, 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 the number of people infected, your medical story is good. Right, so you have to come up with you know with the downside. So what you know what are the what are the things that could go wrong with the app? What bad things could happen in terms of privacy? What other ways could could the app be misused in terms of sort of technology technology for the app? But you know that the, then you have to do some uh, due diligence and process. I think the NHS has actually done a pretty good job, not as good as the decentralized folks across Europe. Uh, uh, you know, in in Germany, Australia, Switzerland, have done a fantastic job. But the NHS uh, X people published the source code. They published the DPIA. You know, a, a few weeks ago, there were people saying, oh, you guys, we don't trust you at all. There were, you know, technical policy ones saying, we can't trust you guys because, you know, well, what does this actually do? It won't work anyway because you can't work around the Apple, Google, Bluetooth thing. Firstly, yeah, it could work. It, it, I knew it was going to work. I, you know, I know how these things work. In fact, it, we have been working on stuff that 11 years ago. So technically, it was going to work. That's that's it. That's, technical level. How many people would download it? Well, that depends on trust. We're up to 40% now of Isle of Wight. That's uh, up there with the highest country uh, so far, which was Iceland. Iceland, in fact, people didn't need the app. They only had like 10 deaths in the whole place. So, you know, to be honest, that it's amazing that 10% of Iceland downloaded the app. But, you know, it was completely irrelevant at that point. But where people think it might be useful, okay, we have a story that medically we're going to improve. We're going to take the number of people you infect because you're in contact with somebody who was infected and we're going to drop that by, if you had 60% of the population running the app, 60% reduction in the infection rate. That's huge, right? That's a really big number. I mean, you will get nowhere near that, but let's take 5%, do the numbers on the mortality. You know, that's already easily justifiable. So, so we have a, you know, we have a story about the comparison. Now, what's the privacy story? The privacy story, when you do manual contact, somebody comes in, they test positive in a drive-to test. You lock them down, you isolate them, you sit them down and you go through their phone book and you say, who did you meet last week? Who were you on the bus with yesterday? What's the privacy there? A human has a list of all the names this person met. The privacy of the app is better. <laughs> so actually, in zero time, the NHS X developed an app well, based on what we did 11 years ago, but still pretty fast, that has improved over the privacy and the contact rate of the manual system. So, in fact, the innovation is, is good. By the way, um, John Edmonds, who we worked with 10 years ago, who is an you know, expert in this stuff, he actually pointed out one of the reasons this worked, and we hadn't looked at this for the last 10 years, was the uh, coronavirus has, this particular coronavirus has exactly the right properties that you can get somebody in early symptoms and have this long period when they could have been infecting people, which you can shut down with earlier uh, contact tracing, which is not true of, uh, for example, HIV, where you have somebody who's infectious but has no symptoms for a long time, which is horribly difficult. Uh, and you have to do all kinds of other much more complicated interventions. So the innovation here was to realize the app was appropriate 
and then point out that it's ethically an improvement over manual tracing because it will do no harm and will improve things. At least as far as we can tell, it does no harm. It's hard to see. The Australian app, by the way, does interfere with some Bluetooth medical devices, so it actually does some harm, which is a bit unfortunate. Um, so, uh, you know, that, there are things you have to care about. with. And then, and then, you know, then what is it doing in terms of its privacy? Well, compared to what? Compared to the baseline, which is manual contact tracing, and it's more privacy. It's got better privacy. Not perfect, as we talked about. It's pseudonymous in the data. If you give that data to loads of people, you've totally broken their privacy. But anyway, enough, enough from me for that. <laughs> Should we adopt tighter control over activity data because it's also medical? So social graph data, the genotype is a is the strongest example for any social graph. So, you know, yeah, that, that that's not a good plan. We should be really super careful about that. That doesn't mean trusted researchers don't do research on it. It just means you don't publish the data. Uh, you may need to have publications checked, you know, verified. So for example, as with drug trials, you have people look at the data, even though it's not published, because it might re-identify patients, but that they can check that the uh, statistics of the paper have been done properly. Um, but that, there, there are established ways to do that. So I don't think that's a, that's a killer at all. That's that, you know, but, we, but we should really be careful. So Caroline, what, what do you think about biometric passports, the idea that travel should be contingent on biometric and health data being shown at the port of entry? I wouldn't like to see that. <laughs> I think the you know the I'm not a lawyer, but you know, the international health regulations exist. Um, you know, so that, that they would have to be started again. Um, I think it, it poses difficult problems ethically, uh, financially, um, and in, in some cases you can see it works. So John's already talked about yellow fever and rabies. So that 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 would work if you you know you need to show your yellow fever certificate. That's one one disease. Um, with an excellent vaccine. You're not showing markers of immunity, you're showing you've been vaccinated. Um, extending this all the way to showing that you have immunity to something like COVID is, is I think, difficult technically, but also uh, ethically. And probably you could go so far with this for, for the known threats and like we have with the yellow fever, but I really don't think it's going to be feasible or very helpful in the context of uh, pandemic control. So what do we know about acquired immunity and innate immunity with respect to COVID? Yes, yeah, so I'm sure innate, innate immunity will be important. Um, I think we have a, currently an insufficient understanding of biology of the virus and its effects on the immune system. People focus on antibody tests because they're easy to do and they're easy to do at, at scale. Um, which is where it becomes a, a, a feasible tool to use. Um, but I think the stage we're at now is we, we don't have, have a tool that, that could be used for this, this sort of thing. Um, I think our understanding will be increasing uh, rapidly. Um, there, I know there are lots of studies underway, um, but I think we're not, we're not there yet. John? I mean, in, in a way, does... does does, does the fact that there are these, I mean, I think you, there are so many questions and, and unknowns about the biology and yet, do, I mean, do you feel that there are ways that we can use data that can be collected and um, from? Well, uh, yeah, so we're at, 
Um, we're actually working on a, a version of contact tracing for uh, developing regions as part of our work with the Gates Foundation on ID. Um, and one of the things we're doing is we're trying to get away from the idea of identifying uh, individuals in contact, but rather thinking about risks to people. So what the NHS app actually also factors this in. Um, so for example, uh, Bluetooth and the phone is used as a proxy for a possible contact. But when you report in with the possible symptoms, they actually work out what stage you are because that uh, can tell how infectious you may be. Um, and therefore, are people within five meters maybe you know, susceptible rather than one meter or two? Um, and so you can extend that to groups. So, uh, it's about st statistical controls. To, you know, to get uh, so so, and how do you do that in a developing region where you have different you know different challenges? Exposes the the, the, the subtlety of how you design the system even more. Also, the acceptability of what surveillance would look like in in different countries shows up uh, with more diversity as well. Uh, I mean, you might be okay in Kenya; uh, people are mostly okay with the government there. Compared with, I won't go through lists of countries. That would be a bad thing for me to do. But but yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. Uh, thank you very much, both Caroline and John, for joining us, and John for for digital systems and and, and the pandemic. I mean, you've you've been. Maybe I'll ask you a very a sort of very brief final question, John. How how optimistic are you that that we are going to be using digital technologies to really live better lives, live happier lives, live healthier lives? And, and and how pessimistic are you that it that the, the unintended consequences and the harms again again outweigh that? Uh, we seem to have maxed out on unintended consequences. You know, there is a bunch of disinformation about the, you know, five G causes COVID nineteen type nonsense, but the amount of it is far less than some other uh, kind of world level incidents where you've seen you know really crazy. Uh, anti-vaxxer style madness. Um, uh, so we are getting into groups with misinformation, which is a form of virus, by the way. We model very, very similarly. Um, but, 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 you know, how do we know what unintended consequences are? You know, that's kind of, that's, that's you know, like I was mentioning right a lot earlier, uh, that my, my friend Michael Veal pointed out an unintended consequence of the contact app. If you, if you were to enforce self-isolation, this could be very, very badly abused by certain kinds of people. Um, so, it takes some smart thinking. On the other hand, there are people around like that who already think that way. So we may have a skill set, you know, that thinks that way. In the same way, the you know, the most awesome thing out there is, you know, is the medical response. When you look at the people modeling uh, the, the, how the virus interacts, you know, gets into a cell and does its reverse transcriptase RNA magic-y stuff, which I don't understand at all. And it's just incredible. And then they say, oh, well, we need treatments and vaccines and do these things with these proteins. You're like... How did they do that in three months, you know, when this used to be like 25 years of work, you know? Uh, and, and, you know, so, so, and that's a consequence of digital technology as well, right? Great. On that note, I'm going to say big thanks to, to Caroline and John for joining us and, and many, many thanks. And next week, we're going to be talking about food insecurity and supply chain resilience. CSAP Science and Policy Podcast is a production of the Center for Science and Policy at the University of Cambridge. This series, Science, Policy, and Pandemics, has been produced in partnership with Cambridge Infectious Diseases and the Cambridge Immunology Network. This episode was hosted by Dr. Rob Doubleday and produced by me, Kate McNeil. Our guests this week were Professor John Crowcroft and Dr. Caroline Trotter.
You can learn more about CSAP's work by visiting us on Twitter at CSIPOL or by visiting our website at www.csap.cam.ec.uk. If you have feedback about this episode or questions you'd like us to address in a future week, please email inquiries at csap.cam.ec.uk. Thanks for listening.